We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Caption Celluloid on Make Time for This. Probably a part of the Yourstep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. We're here to talk movies. Uh, specifically, we're here to talk about Knock at the Cabin, the latest film from M. Night Shyamalan. And M. Night Shyamalan's wider career. Uh, he is something of a fascinating cultural figure i think on on multiple levels he is a genuine kind of name brand director in his own right people show up to see his movies people have expectations as to what they're going to be and his movies continue to do very very well so that makes him someone very very interested to talk about and that's what we're going to do andrew how are you doing doing great adam never better uh, just loving life and everything that it brings. And that includes midday trips to my local theater and walking back to catch an Uber and buying a Dominican Republic World Baseball Classic hat. So I'm feeling great. Just, you know, got I've still got the popcorn butter on my fingers. Well, maybe I don't know. Maybe you should wash your hands. I won't. I won't <laughs> judge you too much on that one. Um, how did you feel? What was your reaction when I said to you we were going to do an episode, uh, an episode on M Night Shyamalan? Uh, I was in on it because I think he's an interesting person to discuss. But my immediate thought was, we're going to talk about a director who I've never really completely vibed with. And, you know, normally this show is something we're really, really passionately advocating for. And while I wouldn't say this will be me passionately advocating, it will be me saying, I'm glad M. Night Shyamalan exists and makes the kind of choices and the kind of movies he makes, because while I'm not often coming away from anything saying, I love that. That's my movie. I'm going to, you know, that's my guy. 
I'll say I'll 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 come out on the other end entertained, often baffled, but something that's at least worthy of a discussion is something really important in filmmaking to me, even if it's not me reacting like strongly in favor of it. If if it's interesting, I still think that's that's important and meaningful. He's never gonna bore you. I think that's exactly. really important to begin with. And I don't know if everyone feels that way from listening. I guess it depends on how many movies you watch. I think particularly in what's left of the space that he operates in, which isn't a whole lot, the kind of lower to mid-budget, very mainstream thriller or maybe horror elements in their space. Um, That is rare to find someone who is just universally, consistently as unboring as as M. Night Shyamalan is. So uh, that is entirely laudable in its own right because that comes to the originality of a lot of his ideas. Um, I think the quality of his execution and honestly, the, the level of skill he has in a visual sense. He is one of the best visual filmmakers working. I think at times it would just be great if he had someone to maybe hone in some of the other elements of his movies and get it all humming together. Because I really don't know how many directors are out there who can just direct a movie in the way that he can at this point. Um, and that is something where he always has a great idea and he always knows how to get that across. And for me, at least, he almost universally ends up losing his grip on that idea before he has a chance to land the plane. And I think if we're to to really kind of take a look at, I mean, what works, um, it's not going to be particularly controversial when I say I think my favorite two M Night films are The Sixth Sense and Signs, and I think they're probably his two best films, and that is taking us right back to the turn of the century and to when he really kind of broke through and became a sensation. They're not perfect. They have their own weirdness. They have their own uh, level of memeability, but they do very kind of clearly identify him and introduce him as the kind of figure who, yeah, he's really re- relevant and would be for a long time after that, still is to this day. Um, but also that he stands out as someone different because he is a bold filmmaker and. He makes his movies. He wears his influences on his sleeve, even if the way that he ultimately brings them to the screen aren't always the best realized. Knock at the cabin. Let's let's get straight into Knock at the Cabin, and then we can we can get into some of our thoughts on, I guess, wider Shyamalan elements towards the end. Um, you've seen this film today before we record this. It's probably two, two and a half weeks ago for me now. And uh, a lot has happened for me since I saw a knock at the cabin. So this is definitely fresher in your mind. What were your impressions of this? What were your expectations going in? Had you seen the trailer? Did you have any level of anticipation of this film, given your relationship with Shyamalan? Uh, I had pretty low expectations. Um, I'd seen the trailer a million times. It feels like just over and over again. Um, 
in, in movies that I'd seen in the theater on cable, on streaming, whatever it may be. I had gotten a lot of exp- exposure to the knock at the cabin. So um, were you were you cold on the trailer? It seems like because of the overexposure, the first time you saw it, were you like? Because I I think it was a pretty good trailer. I'll be honest. I I found the trailer to be effective, and it it got me in in spite of my feelings on say the final twenty to twenty five minutes of old, um, which I don't know if that was a guarantee. There's probably a version of a Shyamalan film that could have came out, and I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna see it, but I'm not looking forward to see it. Where I actually was looking forward to this. Although I don't feel like I was as overexposed to that trailer here as maybe you were in the U.S. That's part of the reason for my low expectations um, because of that. But also, this, the trailers, me souring on the trailer after being overexposed, actually served the film in certain aspects when I actually saw it. Um Especially, I things that I think I what what we assume about the storyline and the plot from the trailer proves to be true and beat for beat, kind of the journey that you end up going down. But structurally, I think I had some assumptions about what this was going to be uh, because of the trailer, and that wasn't exactly what I got going into it. And I really liked that aspect of the film and some of the the timeline things of that nature. Uh, but I was not necessarily looking forward to this as something that I was going to be really excited about seeing. Um, I, to an extent, he is appointment. He's an appointment filmmaker just because, you know, he he became the guy that, you know, he's always got the twist. And I think The Sixth Sense is a really, a really good movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but that set him up as the guy with the twist ending. And uh, for that reason, I think that's going to appeal to audiences and, like you have a brand and people want to see if you're still up there playing the hits this far in your career. So I think for that reason, it's like you, you want to see if it's a train wreck or a masterpiece with what he's going to pull off at the end. So I'm, I was always going to see this at a certain point, but can't say I was looking forward to it. And then I come out on the other side, really liking a lot of things about it. Uh, some things not working as successfully for me, but overall I come away with kind of a positive feeling uh, about this film when I really didn't think it, that was going to be the case. I could not ha- remember uh, what you had scored it, but I remember that you at least came away also with a positive reaction. Uh, but I got to be honest with you, I was really expecting to hate this. I really liked it. I mean, I really, really liked the film. That is not generally my uh, reaction to Shyamalan's movies I felt just generally this was less hokey in its writing um, than his films tend to be Uh, it is by no means subtle in terms of its larger premise but I don't necessarily mind that I find it interesting coming from a filmmaker like him at this point um I don't know. Is this his first reformed Andrew? Is that the way that we we put some of the some of the thematic elements at play here? Easy, easy. <laughs> settle down. This might be his first reformed. I'm not saying it's first reformed. I know, I'm saying I know, it's I know. M Night's yeah. first reformed. 
Yeah, uh, I mean that's a that's a good comparison in terms of you know that what what you're trying to get across there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I do think there is something to. This feels slightly reined in for me in the kind of Shyamalan sense. I even think in terms of performance, one of the problems I've had with some of his recent movies is I think a feeling of there being at least one performance that is so unhinged and a character that is so just bizarrely written that it takes the, it takes the whole movie apart and you're just left there being like, what is going on? Um, I know this is not something everyone would disagree with. I think one of the better examples of this, not just in his filmmaking and his filmography, but in recent film is honestly whatever James McAvoy was doing in Split, which I just, I I despise Split. I know it's a film that a lot of people really, really like, and it, it kind of does have a critical, it does have a sense of like critical acclaim attached to it. A lot of critics really liked it. A lot of audiences really liked it. I did not. I just, it was exhausting. I couldn't do it. Um, as a result, I have yet to watch Glass. It's really the only of his last few films I haven't seen because I'm just like, you know what? Nah, don't need any more of that, even though I like Unbreakable a whole lot more um, than I liked Split. But there's something here where I think the casting is really strong really really strong i think makes great decisions all around i don't know is it the help of the source material and that process of adaptation where there's just a feeling i think this stays on the road a little bit more than maybe some of some of his other movies have and it's so innovative and imaginative with its use of space it's in a lot of ways, it feels like a COVID movie in that we've got a single location in the middle of nowhere, pretty easy shoot by the standards of what shoots have been like in the last two to three years. Um, and yet, a lot of movies have really suffered because of how boring they look visually as a result of that. And the blocking and the kind of creative use and the dynamic use of the camera in Knock at the Cabin even takes kind of what I think at this point Shyamalan is known for and brings it a couple of steps beyond that. Um, it's shot by Lowell A. Meyer and Jaron Blaschke, who's someone who in this pod will have come before as being um, the regular cinematographer. Um, the regular cinematographer who has worked on Robert Eggers' films, so The Lighthouse, The Northman, The Witch someone who's got a very distinct style, a very, very kind of strong reputation at this point as one of the best young cinematographers kind of climbing his way up the ranks and maybe on path to being a master cinematographer as his career progresses. I believe those two work together on Shyamalan's Apple TV Plus TV series Servant, which I have not watched, but I do believe is quite good. Um, Rupert Grint also appears in that, otherwise known as Ron Weasley. And as someone who hasn't watched Servant, honestly, someone who I have not seen maybe since Harry Potter finished, uh, someone who just does not show up on screen as often as you'd expect. 
he is the character here in most danger of being the character that takes the whole movie apart. I actually thought he was kind of good, though. And the movie gets him out of there in time for it to not become a problem where, you know, he doesn't become the focal point of the entire film. And I think there's there's some wisdom in how he's used. Um, there's a distracting element of his character, I think, that... It... Just maybe more than one, him. maybe yeah. more than one, but I, I, I think his performance of that is good, and I, yeah, I don't so know do I. if I would have imagined him in that. I would never have cast him for a role like that. So I guess that points to something Shyamalan saw on him to cast him in his TV show, and then I guess maybe something he saw on him from there to get him into this role. Um, but I just to the overall point, I think this movie looks beautiful. I think it's really, really well designed and casting's great. Dave Bautista steals the show here, I would say. And um, to get out in front of that early, it's not at this point, not really any surprise that Dave Bautista is a really, really good actor and um, who's got a pretty unique screen presence. It feels like everyone knows this, but to some extent, there's still an ongoing um, effort, I guess, from a lot of directors to to find the right role and to get the most out of him. To me, the best we've probably seen of him is still Blade Runner 2049. Um, Denny Villeneuve is clearly a big fan because he had Batista in Dune and he'll be back for Dune Part 2. Um, we saw him recently in Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Honestly, I don't think he was served all that well there. I would like to see more done with him than some of the others. Um, and he is most famous undoubtedly for playing Drax the Destroyer in the Guardians of the Galaxy films, which, although he does perfectly fine with what that's supposed to be, I think is just so kind of laughably a role failing to make any kind of meaningful use of what he can do, what he can do comedically, what he can do dramatically, and that character is pretty empty and kind of a punchline or set up for punchlines for other things that he's spoken about himself lately. It's it's something that I think there's a level of resentment that that's currently what he's associated with. That's what he's seen as an actor. But I think based on this performance, I don't know if you'll have to worry about that in the longer term because I thought he was really, really great. Um, I, I'll throw that over to you. We'll pause on, on Dave Bautista for a minute. Were you similarly taken with his performance impressed by what he was doing in knock at the cabin yeah he's the best part of the movie by far to me obviously the, i think i really like uh the way Shyamalan uses the camera from time to time like there's a lot of really good just sh shots with movement like when they're dragging a body around and kind of being followed or we got kind of the, the shots of people just playing a game of cat and mouse, hide and seeks. A lot of that, I think, is a film that looks really good and is really interesting visually. But for me, he's the thing that ties everything together because it's such a weird and specific character that makes use of everything that he's so good at. First of all, his physicality and just, like, the presence that he has in a room and just because of the nature of, you know, how tall and strong he is obviously he's going to be that dominating figure but you contrast that with just 
an element of calmness and kindness and a softness to his voice and the delivery and the seriousness of it all without that character working and making you the whole first half most of the film is just you questioning whether what you're seeing is genuine truth and realness or some sort of con or delusion and him seeming so genuine is what makes that guessing game and that tension building actually effective uh he's he's just like a really a really like you said a really good actor and somebody that um can just make their presence known in both subtle and powerful ways and this film really makes use of his subtlety i love the way this movie starts because i what i said about the structure is i thought this was going to be your traditional uh, horror thriller narrative where everything's good until it's not kind of a situation but instead we're just dropped into a situation and introduced to everything we know about that character is, is true within the first five minutes and that realness that I'm talking about comes through and that helps set everything in motion and that's all Batista we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, re- really strong hook, and again, that's bold, and I appreciate that because it's not. I there there often feels like there is some time baked in for people who are arriving late to the theater, and people kind of shuffling into their seats just as the movie is starting, and there is there is none of that here. This is, I found an opening that like the tension of kind of settles in pretty quickly, and you're locked in on the movie. Um and that kind of dynamic that is established right there at that point between Leonard, the teacher character played by Dave Batista, with his absolutely giant torso and his tiny glasses, um, and speaking to Wen, the the child character at the center of all of this, 
I just found that scene to be really, really kind of gripping. Um, and as a setup, it was so impactful that then once things like properly start to unfold within the first 10 minutes, I'm guessing, by the time we get the titular knock at the cabin and things go from there, you're already invested in a way that I think, yes, a more increasingly conventional approach to this would have had would have spent more time um up front, not sure any kind of flashbacks with the the happy spell of the family holiday before giving us that jolt, before giving us that turn. And just much more interesting filmmaking, much, much better writing to have this structure that right away, no, you're in it. Something is up and you're on edge because you're protective of this child you've just met. And you're suspicious of this giant man who you've also just met. Um, I think that's really effective. I also thought the the performances of Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge as the the couple of the centrist film really work as well. I I've always quite liked Jonathan Groff. I thought that was good casting, very effective. I honestly don't have any issues with the casting in this film. I do you? I know you said you do some things you didn't like as much of the film. Is casting part of it anywhere or? Like I thought Abby Quinn was was really good and uh, Nikki Amuka Bird was really good. I think this is a really well performed film and cast in a way that's interesting. Like nothing about this cast on paper is one that you're just gonna throw together and be like, Oh, M. Night Shaman's got a new movie coming, which makes it feel like there's more care and detail gone into, it, and I think it pays off on screen, at least for me. No, I didn't have much of a problem with the cast at all it's very possible that much of what didn't work for me yeah i saw uh much of what didn't work for me is uh more related to the source material than anything that he's doing um but yeah other you know <laughs> i don't know about rupert grant's uh accent his medford massachusetts accent but you know other than that uh didn't have a problem with the cast i think uh and like you said they they he knows how to use that character for its purpose in the room, which all works for me. Uh, when we get outside the room and the cabin is or where things, some things fall short for me, but not to say I didn't like the movie. Um, Have we got, I wonder, should we break into those kind of specifics or is there anything else yeah. you've got? That's, that's more general first. Uh, No, we can get into specifics. All right, if you haven't seen Knock at the Cabin, this is a spoiler warning, and <laughs> it's a nice channel film, so t- take a spoiler warning as as a real thing. Um, You know what? I won't even say anything beyond that, because we're going to talk about all those interesting elements. It's not, but I do think if you haven't seen this film, you should go and check it out, and then listen back to it, because you probably have some ideas of your own, and I think it's part of what's fun and interesting in terms of what's at play between the the dynamic between the viewer and the, the film in this case. Okay, Andrew, so you said some stuff when we get outside of the cabin doesn't work quite as well for you. What what specifically were you thinking about? Um the Rupert Grant character being someone from their past uh is was distracting for me. And I just think it was a it was something to that it didn't need to like further add to the oh is this a 
conspiracy or is this real scenario? I don't know. I just I I thought it was unnecessary and just didn't need to be there. And I I I feel like it just didn't work. I that character in general just was my not my favorite part. And I think some of the some of the news bits, I don't know, it was just a little much for me. Uh the the ending was a little much for me. Uh I just think some of the things only just weren't quite my tempo. That the news bits, I, I know you did rewatch a couple of films and maybe not quite as many as as I did for I, this. I I kind that's of got a, the that's sense a of like... staple though. He likes to do that very specific thing. I, I you did rewatch signs and I some of that happens in signs, right? Through the TV. Yeah. Like I, I think there is a very conscious thing where he's he's clearly preoccupied with the idea of how people receive their information, how they act upon it. And then, I mean, in this film, um, the idea of believing or not believing what you see on TV just because it's on TV also plays into it. Um, you're probably right. I can see some of what, what the film or possibly the source material. It's worth noting neither you or I have read The Cabin at the End of the World, the Paul Tremblay novel that this is adapted from. Um, the Rupert Grint element and the background to that character and the relationship to Ben Aldridge's Andrew. I, I guess that could be a larger comment on fate and the the nature of fate, F A T E. That is, um, I guess yeah. that could be a larger comment on what life is like as a as a gay person in America or indeed anywhere else in the world and the constant fear of persecution and discrimination and just the kind of the suspiciousness you got to go about your daily life and then when something like this comes about all of that makes it all the more difficult to to take anything in good faith a boy who cried wolf kind of sense i i don't know exactly where that is i think there's enough there that works that i it didn't bother me i think that character was just a loss um obviously leonard de batista's character is a lot but i think that performance is so kind of finely tuned that he's got complete control of that at all times and i think you can let him do as much as he wants to and it never never gets away from the rupert green character we got just the right amount i think if that character made it deeper into the movie maybe it would be a problem and honestly, maybe it would be distracting for a lot of people who haven't been watching Serve at the Apple TV Plus either. But very few people don't just be like, oh, it's Ron Weasley, you know? So I, I think having him here, there's an element of being able to pay things off a little bit sooner there and that that's effective. It's not entirely stunt casting, but it is effective. Um, Anything else you really liked or disliked then? I, again, I'm really curious for you because I know this is super, super top of mind. I, I really liked personally, I, I think, the performance of the child when um, being the character name. And I think the dynamic between uh, her and her parents, Leonard and Eric, worked very, very well for me. And I just, I thought a lot of that tied together. I thought Abby Quinn was maybe the best of the non-Dave Batista division of, uh, we'll say, the visitors to this cabin. 
but it just kind of I don't know the tension sustained for me in a way that doesn't always happen with films like this and certainly doesn't always happen with M. Night movies we'll get into in a second I think one of the more interesting elements of this film and how it sustains um, but it did and I was quite excited by that um, some other things I really like the family dynamic I think just really worked um, incredibly well Ben Aldridge, Jonathan Groff um, there's a scene that I'd seen in the trailer a million times of them singing Boogie Shoes on what I assumed was going to be the beginning of the movie and it wasn't and the way it was used was so much better and that's all really endearing and it sets up a really great slash devastating payoff that I thought was really good um, I've been singing that song ever since I saw the film by the way, it's, a great, just, it's a great song just, just a warning for you that you're probably going to have a similar issue which uh, there are worse songs that have stuck in your head for sure I think I think I might and uh, that all really worked for me along with Batista obviously that the just like wholesomeness of that love and that family is what is the center and the core of the movie and the premise in general and just the the moral weighing back and forth of what you would do in that situation because i think like they're such a tight unit as a family who have been through things together and faced discrimination and just like have had to fight for their existence the idea of just like the togetherness that that would bring and just if it's like us versus the world kind of a situation so that when you're pressed with this either or situation where you're like it's either one of us or everyone else i really get the pull initially to be like you know again us versus everyone so i think that back and forth and the way that speaks to human nature uh was really good as well and something that i think is a generally interesting conversation uh, to have, especially from an American point of view, I think, because there's a lot of just like individualism that mm-hmm. <laughs> gets spouted about. And this is the like most direct example of like choosing self and your team over existence for everyone else. Yeah, and it really kind of tightly frames the idea of individual inaction and the cost of that, which is, I don't think, a bad thing by any means. I think it's something that if it makes people think about it, it may be in too large of a way to get anyone to think about or have conversations in a way that are actually all that interesting or meaningful. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. Um, but I, I do admire what he's going for generally there. I mean, the, the biggest thing, the thing that interested me most of this movie, I think, and I don't know, like this is clearly a bad thing to have happen when you're sitting in the theater and you should just be focusing on the movie and watching the movie. But my experience was I was really enjoying Knock at the Cabin. And I was really enjoying it and I was really enjoying it and... We're getting to a certain point. What's the duration of the movie? It's a hundred minutes. About an hour forty. Yeah. So maybe it's about the hour mark where I'm like, great, I'm loving this, but and the but wasn't anything that I'd seen happen on screen. Instead, it was about what I was anticipating coming, which was I was anticipating an M Night Shyamalan twist. Um. 
historically, I would say those twists generally ruin his movies for me. There aren't many of them that I like, that I enjoy, that I feel like make the movie better. So I think that's not definitely not a, just a me problem or even a you problem. Like M. Night and Twists are like beyond the point of parody. They are something, they're what he's known for. They're part of why he is this mainstream filmmaker. Like people have an awareness of that. I wonder has he got a different level of awareness of it than he used to have though? Because I mean, ultimately the twist here is that there isn't a twist. And I think that's really effective within his filmography. And I think that works in a way. It pays off in a way that if another director had made this film exactly the same way, maybe the response would be, yeah, I don't know. It didn't really kind of go anywhere at the end, did it? It didn't, it didn't have another place to go to. But I found that to be really effective. And honestly, more than it was effective, interesting that we've reached a point where Shyamalan's twist is that there isn't the big twist, that what people are saying is true and that you should just take them at face value. I don't know, is that maybe in his own right something of a comment on, you know, take me seriously, don't just treat me as the twist guy, take me seriously in terms of the kind of images I compose, how good I am with my camera, um, but that is something I just couldn't shake as I was watching it. Part of that is maybe distracting, but the other part is it was something I was actively enjoying and was impressed by because this guy has made his whole career out of one thing. And in this case, he's knowing enough to be like, you know what, let's subvert that. And I think he did it pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I found myself wondering the same thing as I was sitting there. It's just like, where, where's the twist coming? Um, I don't think that detracted from my experience necessarily. It, more so in just that, like, I just I found the last fifteen minutes just didn't all come together for me. Uh, I I think there was a more interesting story to be told. One. Uh, also, he, he returned. He, okay, I, I think it's less interesting that they were right and they were who they said they were than if it's just the coincidence of everything going around and they're being manipulated. I don't know. It just it's it's stupid to me. I don't think I agree. Because I don't think you do either, because you like it more. <laughs> no, I I know, but I I just think even on a broader sense, and if you kind of get any cultural context for this film, and I'm. I'm wary of trying to place too much on this because it is an M. Night Shyamalan film and it is a thriller. And I know by going off the back of what the rest of his movies are, I, I, this is not something that should be held up as this great allegory for our times. Um, I do think there is something interesting, though, when people are confronted with the truth and they're, they have every reason to be reluctant to accept it and they just want to go on with their own lives like i i don't have to spell that out and that level of a metaphor which does seem to be a play here which i think is effective in the film but i also do think is actually more representative of real human behavior than the human behavior we often see in his films 
I'll tell you what it was specifically that didn't work for me and everything else I don't, I don't have a problem with. It's the the four horsemen stuff on and like that he saw a vision. I think maybe more of a it's the rational, god stuff is is honestly maybe maybe but uh, I like I like really there's a darker interpretation that's just like where he doesn't have that vision and he's not like staying woke to everything that he knows is real like he's finally woken up and he's he, he knows this is real because he saw the vision too and he's on the same page as all these crazy people more along the lines of them still being their clear-headed selves being presented with the evidence that they do have and then just like coming to the tough decision that way it the the vision of it all felt heavy-handed to me and like and all the god shit that that's where it didn't work for me but again i'm going through the process of where i talk bad about parts of a movie that i ultimately was very entertained by you're very entertained by but i you, i wouldn't say you really liked it is that fair like you liked, liked it, it. you liked it exactly the, yeah let's t- let's take the really away but yeah that, that's exactly fair like i mean i can't remember what Last time we were on a podcast talking through a movie that we didn't love was Glass Onion. I like this more than Glass Onion. Let me I say agree. That, so I I think it's just a much much better film. Like as in that director, what they're good at, their vision, achieving it, getting the best out of their cast. I just think this is more effective. Um, I, I don't know if everyone will agree with that because there may just be something about Shannon that is not as kind of broadly palatable and to everyone's taste in the way that I think Ryan Johnson is at this point. But I, I think this is more successful on its own kind of terms of engagement than Glass Onion is. Yeah, I agree with that. And I guess my question for you is, because I've intentionally stayed away from the discourse, is general critical and audience, critical, I guess we'll say, is critical reception coming down like more on the negative side of me or more on the positive side? No, Where do more, I more, fall? More on the positive side, but I mean, it's an M. Night Shyamalan film, so uh, it's kind of it's always going to be mixed. It's always going to be split, no pun intended. Um, there, there was a growing cohort of critics and a lot of really smart critics who are really kind of pushing Shyamalan as this important daughter figure. And I think within the Hollywood system, that is, a, it's reaching a point where that's increasingly deserved, particularly within the shape of modern Hollywood. The kind of films he's making, choosing to make over and over again, I do think as much as I didn't like Split, uh, I could not but applaud the audacity of where that film ends. And you're like, holy shit, this guy is making one of his own films that is not that widely remembered and is now close to 20 years old. He's making this into kind of a sleeper sequel for it and a a backdoor to open it up into a wider universe. Like, who else is doing that? Who else can do that through their own kind of brand of unique and crazy storytelling? So he is someone that I think the detractors are probably always being allowed. Um, I don't think it's difficult to hate his films. 
Like if that's the if that's the spot you want to kind of park yourself on, I think they give you plenty to kind of beat them over the head with, plenty to laugh at. I think mostly in terms of dialogue. I think this this film does less of that, but there is always an element of that. But uh, I think there is a not insignificant counterbody of critics and of analysis on his films now that really recognize what he's doing and how he channels, for example, the colossal outsized influence of Hitchcock on his work and how he applies a lot of Hitchcock's visual ideas and motifs and tries to make thrillers that are Hitchcockian, but also something that are truly his own. And I think not many people would disagree at this point, stand kind of as their own thing that in the future people will probably be referring to someone else's work as kind of derivatives of what, what Shyamalan did. So I would say mixed to positive, probably leaning positive has been the, the critical reception on this film, at least as for the box office, I believe it's currently a $40 million off a $20 million budget, which for him, that is very modest. Um, with the exception of his first two films and the second one, I guess this is true studio debut. And that was made for 6 million and gross only $305,000. I'm actually just going to read true because this is something that no other filmmaker can boast. The six cents, 40 million budget, $673 million at the box office. Unbreakable $75 million budget, $248 million box office. Signs seventy two million versus four hundred and eight million dollars. The village sixty million versus two hundred and fifty seven million. Lady in the Water, a film that is widely considered a bomb, and I guess we factor in marketing, it was, but still seventy million budget versus seventy three million dollar box office. The happening forty eight versus one sixty three. The last Airbender, a disaster, a critically panned movie. Still, 150 versus 319. After Earth, 130 versus 251. The Visit, 5 million versus 98 million. Split, 9 million versus 279 million. Glass, 20 million versus 247. Old, 18 million versus 90 million. This guy makes four to five times of his budget the majority of times. And he has had studio relationships, but he has also being someone who has gone and self-funded when he felt it was necessary, then sold off, sold off and uh, reaped the rewards from there. That in its own right is just such a big deal, though, in the modern landscape of what movies are, that this guy gets people to turn out for his films like that, that he understands and works the system like that. Um, he is kind of a one-of-one on that front like it's he's also he's not someone who does this every five years every 10 years once every two years you can pretty much bet on oh there's a new m night film out and what you can also bet on is it's gonna make money so that your takeaway is that uh he's a guy who has really figured out how to make whatever the current landscape of film is work for him in very creative ways it's that, but it's also he's just making his thing. Like, he's making his thing and he's routinely making money. He's getting different studio partners involved at different times. People show up, people like it, whether critics like it or not. Like, and he does it at 
a really incredible volume. Like this is not some slow paced auteur where he's taking years to think up of his next idea. Like he turns these things over and they make money and they make money into the period where filmmakers stop making money. Like after it is such a bomb, $130 million budget. So what happens next? I say it's a bomb. It gross $251 million, but it was panned. It was not well thought of after the last airband ender and um, went similarly. So then he goes and he makes the visit for $5 million, which is one of his more regarded um, and successful films versus, you know, box office to budget. Then he makes split for 9 million grosses to 79 million. The last for 20 million, 247 million. He just, he ramps up and he's he's kind of done that to a point where he's back in around the 20 million budget mark. The level of versatility of flexibility. I don't think it's a coincidence that maybe his two biggest disasters have come with his greatest budgets. Um, but having said that, I think he deserves a lot of credit for just the flexibility of his career. Yeah, the ramp up, scale back, kind of back and forth thing is is interesting i mean especially split which i hated as well but undeniably just like an incredible achievement for what it was i actually like the visit uh i haven't seen it in a few years but uh in in theater i thought it was one of the more successful versions of that type of movie uh which aren't always my cup of tea something you brought up earlier is that one of the interesting things about knock at the cabin and the lack of the twist or, or whatever you want to make it is what does this open up him up to do in terms of telling story where he doesn't necessarily feel as boxed into a certain formula because old I think in the happening were probably the two worst examples of not really the happening I guess that was just like disaster from point A to point Z and old was more of a film that I thought for a time was pretty successful and working and then just really just train off tracks when it gets to the, to the twist. Old is uh, great. Great. Until it's terrible. Yes. And <laughs> like that's, that's the problem. And that is the problem with his films. It's it's not just that you're like, Oh, that was fine. And now it's terrible. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to turn that off. And I'm never going to think about it again. His movies are routinely great until the point where they can fall apart because of the twist. I mean, not having a twist here, when you ask what does that open up that he can do, Andrew, the answer to that question is likely to have a big-ass twist in his next movie. (laughs) But that's fine. Like That works, and that's interesting, and that's what he does. So the next time I go to see an M. Night Shyamalan movie, I am going to have in my head, well, he didn't really do the twist at Knock at the Cabin. So I'm going to have the reverse thought of what I had while watching this is, is he going to not do a twist again? Is he, is this, has he been, has he changed? Has he been reformed? I'm going to bet he probably hasn't, but that in its own right is kind of a progression in just how engaging it is to watch his films for the first time, because it getting to a point where you're like, okay, what's the twist is not good because even if he's got a killer twist, then, it's going to be undermined by the audience expectation of, oh, yeah, it's here's the twist guy doing another twist again, which is not fair. But I think the only way you can get away from that is to break that perception, to do something that doesn't quite filter into it. 
And it's not just that he doesn't really do the twist here. This story is so set up for an absolutely ridiculous, stupid M. Night Shyamalan twist. These people who are hearing voices, who are seeing visions, coming to say the world is ending and all these unbelievable things are happening. It's so set up for us to just like pull back and there's, I don't know, a guy watching CCTV footage of this cabin and orchestrating the whole thing just in some nonsense way. And the fact it doesn't do that, I think, is really, really powerful because anyone with even the slightest understanding of whose film they're watching, I think that lands. It's got to land because you got to know what is coming and then it doesn't come. Uh, you know, he's only 52 years old. He's very successful, as you just outlaid that conversation. There's plenty of opportunity for him to, you know, finally make one that really blows me away. So even if I would not say he's a filmmaker that I love, he's one I'm like I my opening thesis, I guess we'll call it is he's one I'm interested in. And, you know, I'm on board if the next movie has the biggest twist we've seen yet, the most insane one, or if he just makes three in a row that don't have anything and then he knocks it out of the park with the fourth one. But I think your anticipation that he's uh he's gonna get up there and play stairway to heaven with his next one is is something that'll probably happen you know what there's nothing wrong with playing stairway to heaven um let's let's zoom out a little bit here you watched signs i know you had some feelings on that some takeaways on that the overall mission here like to your point, maybe it is the visions, the voices in Knock the Cab. There's always something that is slightly it's reaching for something different. It can be very closely tied to religion, I think, in these films. It's certainly not a stretch to look at that, but even if you don't want to view it in that kind of lens, there's always something a little bit unhinged at play in his movies it's it's pretty fundamental it's pretty central to them at this point i don't think that is your kind of thing to be like yeah that's what i love in my movies i know it's not mine does that stop you from finding the experience of watching Shyamalan movies to be pleasurable though no i wouldn't say it does i rewatching signs and the village i think some of that unhingedness is unintentionally funny, and I can enjoy it from that standpoint as well. Uh, and Signs is Signs is a ridiculous movie if you haven't seen it in a long time, anyone. Some of the dialogue that you had sent me ahead of time uh, between Joaquin Phoenix and a military officer of some sort is just hysterical. There is a scene at the coffee table when Joaquin Phoenix is talking about being chased by what he thought or chasing down what he thought was a man. And then a cop asks him, uh, are you sure it wasn't a woman? And he's like, a woman can't move as fast as me. And she's like, what about those women in the Olympics? And for some reason, that line reading is just hysterical. There's just so much ridiculous shit scattered throughout this movie, but I still found it, uh, entertaining and interesting. Like the, the concept of 
having faith, losing faith, and refining your faith isn't necess- necessarily something that's always going to be drawn to me. But, I mean, Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix in a in a crop circles movie, that's not going to not be entertaining. So uh, I allow myself to just get sucked into a degree that even though I know I'm not watching something that's for me, some of the things like the the emotional uh, family dynamics at play and just like dealing with grief and overcoming tragedy is something we all have to relate to at certain points of our lives. And then it's just turn off your brain. It's an alien movie. So like, sure. Uh, but yeah. And, and honestly, God, the village is unhinged too. the Adrian Brody character and <laughs> everything that's going on there. Like, how's the so good in the village though like the cast is. is incredible i i mean signs in the village together is interesting too because you see him having this vision for joaquin phoenix in the very early stages of phoenix's career where fairly shaman sees something in a way that like he latches onto it a way like james gray latched onto him and i don't think like it's talked about um, I don't think people even remember it necessarily. Like, Signs is undoubtedly Mel Gibson's movie, uh, for better and for worse, as we're now in Can 2023. we talk about just walking Phoenix's character in Signs? It's just like a grade-A moron <laughs> the entire time. It's so funny. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it is interesting that he he saw something in him and tapped into it. And based on the trailers, there might be a little bit of a Bo is afraid through line to the idiot character that he's playing in science. Do you think Bo's uh, a failed minor league ball player? Could that be that be an element of play there? God, the five hundred and seven foot home run! What a what a what a blast from uh, from uh, Merrill or whatever his name is. I I think it is Merrill. I I do also think though it's interesting to think about the kind of leading men that Shyamalan has turned to and what interests him, because whether it be Bruce Willis and the Sixth Sense, and I guess later again in Unbreakable, certainly Mel Gibson, the Sixth Sense, um, but right true to, again, now when you get Dave Bautista and Knock at the Cabin, there's a certain idea, a certain type of masculinity that Shyamalan turns to not necessarily to endorse, but to interrogate and to reframe in some extent that I I find really interesting once again. Um, I was honestly, I will say it, I was quite taken by Mel Gibson's performance in The Sixth Sense in the sense that you watch that and you're like, hmm, I don't know what actors give performances like that now, like that specific kind of brand of leading male performance. I don't think there's an actor who does that. Um, and I, I don't know if there's a director, honestly, who as readily looks to draw on that kind of male performance as Shyamalan did through the first, I guess, the early years of his career, but he's still kind of doing it to, today. Like, when you cast Dave Batista, you're making a very clear statement of what your idea is there and then when you're playing with that further you're making him a teacher you're making him this truly this big softy um you're making a real point so i find that to be interesting too 
and the dynamics of play and how he has kind of viewed actors because he doesn't go necessarily chasing the biggest stars either. I mean, you said you you remember quite enjoying The Visit, but I will say that The Visit is Mark Wahlberg. I don't know what Mark Wahlberg is doing in The Visit. Um, and honestly, I think that's one where a leading man more in line what's, with what seems like Shyamalan's general preference could benefit that film. Um, He's in The Visit. I, yeah, he is in The Visit, I believe, unless I'm confusing myself. Sorry, I am confusing myself. He's in The Happening is what I meant to say. Yeah, I hate The Happening, so let's not get Sorry. that on record that I like The Happening. <laughs> have you seen The Happening? That's, that's I have. I, don't I have. It's incredible. The Happening is wild. There is a sequence in that. And there's some stretches of Mark Wahlberg dialogue, which is just completely and utterly deranged, even by the standards of Shyamalan's dialogue and Mark Wahlberg's acting. So Zoe yes. Deschanel's in a coma Correct. in that movie. Zoe Deschanel's performance is also so big. I've never seen her give a performance like that. That whole movie is just weird. Um, I I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, my overall take here is I'm softening on Shyamalan, and it's not because I'm like I really like his films, but I am interested in what he is doing and I, I think it is worthwhile like not every filmmaker that has name value and that is doing something that is distinctive needs to be the kind of filmmaker that you and I hold up on a pedestal on a podcast like this I think there is the value to people who are mid-tier filmmakers uh, value even to in a different way filmmakers who are lower tier kind of grungier filmmakers who maybe value don't have the same to... critical rep reputation just having their own signature like being like cinematic artists where you go see their film and it's like okay that's got the m night signature on it that's cool that's what i'm here for i do think that matters and it makes for more interesting filmmaking i think for the state of the industry in a business sense it's kind of what Hollywood is crying out for. Um, it's why we talk about IP, 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 and IP being the only reliable thing in town. If there are more filmmakers like M. Night Shyamalan, where an audience could be like, oh, I'm interested in M. Night Shyamalan as the intellectual property of sorts, I think that's a much healthier place where you get the middle back again, where you get a varied mix of filmmakers being empowered. Um, more filmmakers like him could open that up where at the moment it has to have some franchise attachment because I don't think filmmakers one, get the opportunity but two, necessarily opt to build an arc in a way as clearly defined as Shyamalan has and I think that has its benefits and I think there is a value to polarizing filmmakers uh, that have a unique vision being out there um, there are going to be wild swings on my feelings on most M. Night Shyamalan movies, and I don't think that's a bad thing. First of all, because I, I'm uh, the second lead on a podcast about movies, um, so it's really valuable to have things to talk about. I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to make it through a whole baseball offseason talking about local politics, Adam. But uh, uh, with movies, you know, there's always something new down the line, and if three years from now we're still alive on this bright 
blue marble circling the sun. That's how that works, right? Um, then we'll be gearing up to talk about another M. Night Shyamalan movie. And, you know, content is king, baby. I mean, and I assume the only reason we wouldn't be alive is if we got a knock at the cabin and Dave Batiste is at the door. I'm letting everyone else die. Me and my I, family. I, I have no doubt. I mean, you're you're definitely not budging for any reason, and I don't think you'd feel any remorse at the end. So, uh, me, I, I don't Sarah, know how that would work Freddy, for dramatic purposes. Me, Sarah, Freddie, and Chipper are just going to take walks around the ashes that of our crumbling society. Sure. I look. I'm not going to blame you for that, Andrew. Listen. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, no, I'll save you. I'll save you, Adam. I'll save. Oh, that's myself. very kind of you. That's very kind of you. That sounds great. After that, I don't know. Um. <laughs> so I appreciate that sentiment. I think I'm that's in a weird mood got. these days. <laughs> I've noticed. I've noticed. Do you, like, that's do you all we've go, got on Shyamalan. Do you want to go one through five quickly? Sure. Okay. We could do that. Um, All right. I've got the I've got the village at five. I've got Unbreakable I... at four. I'm putting Knock at the Cabin at three. I've signs at two and the Sixth Sense at one. I've got um, the village at five. Knock at the Cabin at four. Unbreakable at three. Signs two and Sixth Sense one. Okay, so the only differences are unbreakable knock at the cabin placement. So that was um, really, really not worth me extending. Well, your it was. I mean, that's that's often what happens when we when we do lists. Um, yeah, that does it for for our conversation on M Night, and we'll be back next week. We're going to talk about TV, but also we're going to talk about sports. And the sporting question is golf. We have not yet had a golf episode on the podcast. It's a sport, Andrew and I. Uh, are very very interested in uh, I am very passionate about so I'm excited to do that what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Full Swing the new Netflix series which has just dropped today as we record this um, documenting the last year of all kinds of eventful happenings on the PGA Tour and on the upstarts challenging the PGA Tour and many of its players and I guess we'll also talk a little bit about the season to date so far. Tiger Woods is set to play his first tournament of the year, so that's always exciting. Um, so yeah, full swing and some more general talk about the PJ Tour coming up next week on Make Time for This. And don't worry, from there we'll be in our final ramp up to the Oscars. I'm very close to everything. I'm having a hard time. Women talking is out here, and it's just not being friendly to my schedule so i'm still having a tough time trying to lock in women talking but once i've got that i don't i not only have the best picture nominees but i have pretty much everything i think i've got maybe one or two other things to catch um but i'm nearly there and feel good too about kind of more general what i've seen so the ramp up to oscar talk and then to our own top 10s of 2022 it's nearly here andrew it's coming up fast i'm excited about uh next week i've been more locked in on a january to february golf season than i have been uh in previous years and it's been pretty rewarding with some of the the guys 
winning and like the storylines that'll emerge as we get closer to the majors. And uh, I'm seeing uh, women talking next week. So excited to get that in as well and uh, continue to uh, knock things off the list. Um, my midlife crisis has gotten in the way of uh, me seeing things lately, except for today. And then this weekend, I've got outdoor hockey to watch. So, but after then, it's, oh, that's it's, right, it's, stadium, it's stadium series, right? Oh yeah, Carolina Hurricanes, Washington Capitals. We won't have a podcast on that, but just know I'll be there. Uh, you know what? We should we should find someone to do a podcast with you. I, I think I know a guy that we could draft in. Um. That's the kind of thing we should have a podcast on. Well, let's let's leave that. We've worked that one out off air. Um, all right, that does it for us. GSPN.info. You can get the details on all of the current happenings and going on across the Eurostep Podcast Network. You've got the Eurostep Podcast Network, the main feed for all things books, cruising for a bruising, where Andrew and I can be found talking all things brewers, talking to Tundra for everything Green Bay Packers, and yeah. Here on Make Time for This, you get pop culture and all the rest. Any other sports you want to talk about? You obviously get your movies, but TV, music, all kinds of things beyond that. Yep, pretty much does it for now. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.